You ready? All right. Welcome back to the exciting life of Christ, real time life of Christ. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, we continue to study that. And um, study material we use Chronicle Study of the Life of Jesus by Gene Taylor, Fourfold Gospel, J.W. McGarvey, Philip Pendleton, uh, some stuff on padfield.com. Uh, uh, I use uh, Kaufman's commentary a lot. Fourfold Gospel's got a lot of notes too, I cross reference both of those. Some of the stuff that comes through it. Uh, we're in chapter 16, if you've got the Chronological Study of the Life of Jesus by Gene Taylor. We're uh, starting chapter 16 t- today. So, anybody hungry? Hey, Mike. No? It's always a good thing to come, come to Bible study hungry. So, I thought I'd ask that question. We hunger, we thirst. So, we'll pass out candy anymore, or canned goods, or stuff. Today we're going to touch on tar- three things in a row. We're going to look at a, and Luke 13 and 14 is where we're going to be. Luke 13, 22 through 30 is a banquet in heaven. Luke 14, verses 1 through 6 will be a Sabbath meal with a Pharisee. And Luke 14, 7 through 11 is a parable of the wedding feast. If I'd had more time, I would also include the banquet of the great, the parable of the great banquet, which follows that. So it would be feast, 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 and feast. But that's what we're going to look at today. So. I don't know. I, it's kind of ironic, like that. It's all. It's four. It's four things in a row about food, in some form or fashion. So, I don't think church works without food. It's a. They eat together. That's a common, common thing. So the banquet in heaven, Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. I don't think I ever leave Luke for any of this stuff today. I might have skipped somewhere, but anyways, should be all in Luke. So I'm going to start out reading this part of it. Luke 13, 22 and through 23, the beginning of it. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying around Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? There's an old joke, I guess, among Bible students that says that when they numbered the verses, because obviously they're not numbered in the original text, the guy did it as he ran, rode a horse across England. A horse would trip over a rock or something, He'd make a little mark, and that's where these numbers come from. So, I mean, this is, completes a thought right here. Lord, will those who be saved be few? But he continues in verse 33, and he said to them, 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I will tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So, these, you'll find these weird numbering things that today we would just don't make sense. But anyways. And once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, and saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some are, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So that's the text that we're going to start out with. So Luke 13, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, We've been looking at this as he's kind of making his way towards Jerusalem. I think we're in the like last six months of Jesus' life. 
Once he gets to Jerusalem, he'll basically be in the last couple weeks. Um, so this man stands up. Well, he doesn't even say stand up. Last week was a stand up. man asks this question is likely Jewish. Okay, What difference does it make? I think it makes a difference if you look at the context of it. But he's likely Jewish. And he asks, Lord, will those who are saved be few? What do you think prompts him to ask such a weird question? Clayton? He doesn't think he's worthy. Oh, okay. So he doesn't think he's worthy. Keeping the law perfect. Okay. So yeah, a guy that is, doesn't think he's worthy might ask, you know, why are only the best getting in and not the rest of us, huh? That's, one, that's a way of looking at it. I hadn't thought of that way, but he could be doing that way. Because it does seem to be an exclusive type club, doesn't it? Not everybody gets in. Alvin? Did they something uh, somewhere say that there's a horny one going to be 144,000 or something? Yeah, I think it's I think it's Revelation. That was in the Jewish mindset. There's only going to be a certain number. It could, it could be, and I know that number. It's symbolic, and I know it can it continues to go. There are religious movements today who believe that the 144,000 are the only ones that get in. Uh, that's, it says, anyways, what that number being symbolic, 144 is 12 times 12, 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. 12 is, I think, man and God, 4 and 3, uh, God, 4 being the world, man, 3 being God. So it's 4 times 3 times 4 times 3. 10 is, 10, 10, and 10 is like everybody, all time, always. So, Basically, it's not a locked number. It'll be the people that get into heaven will be all of God's people. There'll be not any of God's people who don't get into heaven. Yeah. So that, right. How often should I give? Seven? Seven times seven? Seven times 70? Yeah. And, and you're right. If, if there was really a number, this magic 144,000, what hope do you have if you're 144,001? Right? There's no hope. And I, I, I don't know, I'm not deep enough into other religious movements, um, but there are some that say that 144,000 is already sealed, but to me that takes away our own personal hope of where, where you could get, why? It's, you know, it's, so, I don't know. Yeah, but, I, and I don't know if that 144,000, like I said, it, I think it's Revelation where you see that, but... Um, it's an over, overlying concept that probably somewhere. Anything else? Do we think this? Do we think only a few will get into heaven? You hope not, right? We hope not. Is that the case? I don't know. Well, one of my answers that I come up with, uh, once from McGarvey, so A, the Jews extended their exclusive spirit even to their ideals of a world to come, so they believed none but the chosen race would behold its glories. So in the Old Testament, which at this time, although Jesus is on the ground, it's still Old Testament times. The only way to be in the kingdom, the kingdom of God at this time was the Jewish culture. If you were not a Jew, you were not in the kingdom of God. And this is, as the, the guy's a Jew, he would carry this on through the ages that only Jews would get into heaven. So that was the case at that time. The kingdom was Jews only. 
It changes with death, with the gospel. Changes to what? What's the kingdom changed to once after the gospel? Kingdom changes to the church. So no longer a bloodline. It's Christ's bloodline. It's his blood that gets you in. But it's no longer who your mom was. It's no longer who your dad was. Clayton? Yeah, that's true too. Only he knows. That's a good point. Not, so the, yeah, the num, there's no number there. He's the only one. He probably is a finite number. I know that. It's, it's not an infinite number. But it is a number and only, only God knows that number. Right. Yeah, that's a good point, too. On Wednesday night, Matt talked about faith. We talked about uh, James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. And as we look at that, and some of the notes I was looking at, if you take faith and you replace it with trust, because sometimes we, t- faith has a, faith is a whole everything, like brownies. You can't leave anything out of it. You know, it's a fullness to it. So we can't really have cheap faith. You can't have empty faith, hollow faith. You can't really have those. Those aren't really faith. Um, but if you replace it, you put trust. We understand trust, maybe put a little higher confidence in trust. You know, I trust gravity every day. You know, I trust that my key will unlock the door. These aren't things I ever question. You know, a hollow faith or a shallow faith, I hope my key opens the door. I hope that gravity works. But trust, if we apply it to God, trust is more, it's deeper. And Clayton kind of put that on there too. Trust, if God says it, trust it. Believe it. Where you know it's right. It's a trust factor. Sometimes faith may be not the best word because I think it gets cheapened sometimes. Do we understand everything? No. Yeah. Yeah. Do we understand everything? No. And uh, Part B, so this guy may have been a Jew, and basically an error concept that Jews were the only ones in the kingdom, which were at the time. The concept would be only those get in. Um, that might have been his point of view. And B, Luke's Gospel, uh, this immediately follows where this text is. If you back up a couple verses, this follows the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven kingdom growing from something small. Chuck taught those last week. So, you know, there's the faith like the size of a mustard seed or the yeast that you put in the bread and make it grow. So it could be, although it says he was going on from town to town, it could be that somebody that had heard that and was comparing it to, you know, the, the smallness of the mustard seed, the smallness of the leaven. So that's his question. Well, say be few. The man asked this question, like I said, he's likely Jewish. So what do you think? Will the number be saved be few? Does it have to be? Did I ask that question? Does it have to be few? And part of our job as evangelists, we have the good news, we share the good news. If it has to be, if only a few people get in, there ain't no sense to sharing the good news. You might as well keep it yourself. We want everybody, well, we want everybody in. Contrary to what the Pharisees and Sadducees really want. We want everybody. The more the more the merrier, right? I'd rather everybody be on that side. It would make life here better if people were in tune with God, in tune with Christ. Clayton? I'd have to even pray for your enemy as hard as it is. Yeah, pray for your enemy as hard as that is, maybe for a softer heart, for a change of ways to, yeah. That's a good, that's you they won't be your, if they get into the, if they're in the kingdom of heaven, they will not be your enemy. That's a given.
All right, so 23, he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek and enter and will not be able. Um, these are notes from Coffin's commentary, but holders of door which is most desirable, a man should enter. You can go through the narrow door, you can go through the wide door. What this concept is really going to show, what some of their notes are, you got an option, and just because the door is narrow doesn't mean less people will get through it. What really happens is people choose to go their own way. They choose to go through the wide door rather than going through the approved. So this gate, this narrow gate is the gate of a man's spiritual home. Our citizenship's there. Our treasure's there. The hope of every man is there. Our Lord is there. Our names are written there. I got references there too. B, it's the gate of the city of refuge, Hebrews 6.18, because it's the, city of a, the gate of the eternal life. It's the gate of escape from the fate of the wicked. And how is it that some seek to enter and not be able? Because that's what it says. Um, strive to enter. And some seek to enter, will not be able. Some may not enter because of pride of life. You got your pride of life, you're probably not going to listen to what, like you say, to what Clayton said, um, that trust. You're not going to trust that. You're going to trust yourself. Well, that just doesn't sound right. I'll trust what I believe instead. The procrastination of some. You know, that's a topic that's come up on Wednesday night sometimes. I wouldn't want to bet my life on reaching for Christ at the last second. You know, is it possible? Yes. Is it seek early, follow early? You know, assuredness is where I'd want to be. I wouldn't want to deny, 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 and then hope to grab on. Don't procrastinate. The casual seeker cannot enter. And, you know, like I said, it, it even says the, those who, some of them in short time will get in, but I wouldn't want to procrastinate. The casual seeker cannot enter. The word strive is there. This means agonize. So you're working to get in. I don't know if work's a good word, but they want to. Some carry contraband. Many things might be abandoned by those who would enter this door. These are, Spur, I guess, Spurgeon's words. How is it that some seek to enter and not be able? Some wait until the door is shut, and some will never try at all. So these are some other things that happen. So, so basically, people either try to get in through the wide gate rather than the narrow gate, or not interested in going through the narrow gate, or whatever they carry is too wide to get through the gate. Um, and like I said, pride of life, you probably know somebody whose uh, their pride makes them too big. Their head might be too big to go through a door somewhere, right? So you've got that kind of concept. Uh, J.S. Lamar, his New Testament comments, commentary says, Jesus does not say nor mean that many will seek to enter in by the straight, straight gate, the narrow gate, and not be able, but that they will seek to enter heaven without going through the narrow gate. And that's the thing. They'll try to get in by the wrong way. And Alfred Plummer does not say that, Jesus does not say that many strive in vain to enter, but that there will be many who seek in vain to enter after the time of salvation has passed. So I want to this really the concept. It's not people try to get to heaven and fail. They're not trying to get in the right door. They're not trying to, they don't really want to get there. The ones that fail have not, they've tried to get there by other means. Right. Comes down to motivation. Seeing it. People do things for different reasons. Right. Seeing it, believing it, trusting it. That's it. When does the door of the kingdom shut? It talks about the door being shut. So when does it shut? When Christ returns. 
gross returns, uh, definitely that's the judgment day when we return. And our, our fate will be sealed as far as then. Anybody else got another concept? Even though I don't understand it, I assume there's different harvests. Yeah, um, what about death? Is your fate different after death? I debate that every time I read a book or look and watch TV. There are people that believe, uh, yeah, there are some people that believe that. You can't really change anything in your life. You can't change where you're striving for. You can't change that after you're dead. Uh, there's rewards and penalties. I think that'll happen. Um, judgment Day is when it's assigned, but at death, that's, that's which gate you're going to go in. And some of that stuff with the with the time, I understand the you know the time gap. And I think one of the things I think about is like a guy like Adolf Hitler. Uh, he's been dead for seventy years, but he still influenced the negativity all around the world. So although his fate may be sealed, the penalty, you know, he continues. It still it still piles on him some of the the problems that he had. But how many good works are the same way, you know? The fact that you're a Christian comes from someone else who may have gone on. The good works that they did that you continue to do good works, and these still pile on for them too. So although your fate may be sealed, the door the door to the kingdom, the door to the kingdom will definitely close on the day of judgment, but our fate may be sealed before that with death. Right. Yeah. And when it happens, we don't know. I wouldn't want to be too late. So who shuts the door? Verse 25, once the master of the house has risen to shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, and he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. So who shuts the door? The one that created the door, the guy that lives on the inside, right? That's, uh, that's a good answer. It's got to be God himself. Verse 26 and 27, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, you taught, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So who are these people? Who are these people that ate and drank in the presence of Jesus? That he talked about the church a lot. It could be the church. It could, see, so many things go in many directions. It depends on which direction you look. But it's that better literature. Right I'm talking better. about a church because if I go to a certain church and do certain things, I deserve to go in. I think it's the depth, the depth of the writing of the scriptures, the fact that it does go different ways. It's symbolic or opens up different things. And I agree with that. It could be the church. It could be your, your striving, your commitment to that. Yeah, I came to all the fellowship dinners, you know. I came and sat on an orange pew, you know. Or may have gone across the street or worshipped at home or whatever it is. Did you commit? Did you strive? You know, being in his presence, did you believe it? Did you trust it? Did you act on it? The, I, I think part of this points to the Jews. You know, Jesus was there. They had one of these feasts. I was at the feast. Did you listen to him? Did you believe him? Did you trust him? He taught in our streets. He was right there in front of my house and gave that, you know, healed the guy right there. But what did you do? It was just because he was on the property. Was it enough? Jesus says, well, where did you come from? 
Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's a relationship thing. It's a bond. It's a trust. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves cast out. But you yourselves are cast out. Who weeps and gnashing their teeth? There's no middle ground. If you don't get in to the feast, if you don't get into heaven, you're in the perpetual torment of hell. And hell is always described, often described as the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So these are people who didn't get in. When they see Abraham and Isaac, how did Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets get in? I'll guarantee they're not Christians. takes a lot of faith. We saw Abraham's faith, uh, Hebrews 11. Matt's been teaching on some of those things. His faith starts when he steps out towards the kingdom, to the land that God will show him. When he takes his son, he has faith that God will, will uh, bring him back. They acted on faith. Isaac and Jacob and the prophets the same way. Are these guys sinless men? Hmm. Abraham worshipped idols? Jacob was a trickster, wasn't he? Blessed the wrong son. Yeah, yeah, Abraham was Sarah. That's a whole different thing. Didn't trust God enough to even give him the son of promise. And God had to say, yeah, he lied about that. He has a son. His son is not the son of promise because he took things in his own hands. So they erred. They goofed up. They made bad choices. But the repentant heart, that heart that strives towards that narrow gate. Right. And I thought, I like that, really. is known as a man of faith, but not perfect. That, that's what I strive to be. Not perfect. I don't strive to be not perfect. I'm already not perfect. But I strive to be a man of faith, regardless of not being perfect. You can still get in the narrow gate that way. If I want to get through the wide gate, it's a different story. People come from east and west and north and south and recline at table at the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last will be first and some are first will be last. So, yeah, and that's a, some people think they'll go first because of where they, where they go, um, what they believe. So that's a humility thing. To go because I did this. Yeah, I need to go because I did this, because I spent my time, because I spent my money, this because I bought my way in. And that's not the answer either. So we see this big banquet. I've got terrible English on my question there. Um, there's a banquet inside. There's a humility thing in verse 30. The ones that think they're at the top, if they humbled themselves, became the bottom. They become last instead of first. They'd be more sure to get in. And this again talks to the talks to the Jews. It talks to the Pharisees, in particular the Sadducees. The invitation to this banquet is universally open to those who strive to do God's will and enter through the narrow gate. 
It's people who come from the east, people who come from the west, they come from the north, they come from the south. These are the people. They come early, they come late. These are the people that are there. It's not that few number. It's actually open to more people. So, but it's, they come through the narrow gate and they do God's will. So that's where it's at. All right, moving on to the next meal, the Sabbath meal of the Pharisee, Luke 14, verses 1 through 6. Luke 14, verse 1, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Would you expect the Jews, would you expect Jesus to be invited to such a dinner? Sabbath day at the house of a Pharisee, we see week after week after week that the Pharisees hound Jesus. They're after him to kill him. Do you expect him to be invited to this dinner? Okay. Invite them just to look good. Invite them to cause a trap. Invite them to let them hang himself and show that he's not the son of God. Ah, you could invite them because you believe too. The Nicodemus type thing. That'd be like almost the secret way. You know, I don't have to tell everybody I believe. I can look like I'm having a trap. It's the trap of traps. Would you expect Jesus to accept this invitation? He knows, right? Again, can he change hearts? He did it for a reason. He, it's a teaching moment. He never gets tripped up. These guys try to trap him left and right and over and over again, and he never gets caught up. I mean, never. Is the invitation like that of the banquet in heaven? Well, we just saw the banquet of heaven. People come from east and west and north and south, and there's a wide invite to get into that banquet. Is this banquet that way? It's not. It's, it's at the house of a Pharisee, and they don't like dirty people. Eh, I don't think this one is, though. I, I think this one's a little different. These aren't accidents. They're trying to teach you something. It's, yeah, it's a teaching moment. Thank you, He's a target. He's a target. He's a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee's family. It's probably some of the other religious rulers. Jesus is a target. He didn't just say, bring all your buddies. You know, it's Jesus gets invited. We see another guy that gets invited that probably wouldn't have gotten invited either. But and there's a guy comes in that smells bad, or you know, the post is saying, "Man, get out of here." Yeah, it ain't the same thing. It's the same thing because they really don't want all those people. You see some of these Pharisee feasts. Grandma and dinner at the house. Come by. Oh, there's a prostitute here. How does she get here? This. It's kind of it's that way. I took Latin in high school, and every story started out, what does a Roman carry under his toga? Sometimes these stories, sometimes these accounts are almost the same way. It's the same story, and it's like, how did he get here? What's a surprise? Uh, anyways, Luke 14, the same verse. What day of the week is it? The easy one. It's the Sabbath. It's Saturday. It's Sabbath. It's Saturday. This is the day they are. I read that... Uh, People that time typically eat two meals a day, six days a week. They eat two meals a day. But on the Sabbath day, they eat three meals a day. So there you go. What that has to do, I have no idea. But take that for something. If there's a day I'm more likely to eat two meals a day, it's probably on Saturday or Sunday. So, But they eat three. Um, Pharisees had every reason to believe Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. They're presented with an opportunity. Uh, he'd done it several times before. He healed Simon's mother-in-law, the man with the withered hand, a woman crippled 18 years, paralytic or paralytic, as Steve likes to call it, at the 
pool of Bethesda, the man born blind, and the demoniac at the synagogue Capernaum, all on the Sabbath. He healed these people, and they'd expect him to heal on the Sabbath. That's where the trap comes in, verse 2. And behold, behold, this isn't look at, it's just a looky there. Look at that. There's a man before him who had dropsy. You know, this guy just peers out of nowhere. The man with dropsy. And Jesus responds to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So it says, behold. This is a trap. This is a setup. It seems to be this guy... He wasn't sitting at dinner. He just appears. He comes out. They've had him in the back room, told him to drop by at 710, you know, something like that. It seems to be a setup because it says, and behold. You've heard this story before, right? Anybody ever hear this story? We've all heard it. What is dropsy? What do you believe dropsy is? I've heard definitions. I asked my wife, the social worker, the the, uh, the angel of the aged that she is, she had an idea. What is it? I don't know. What do you think it is? <laughs> this is a question. I ask the questions. Uh, it, this is my trap. This is not your trap. This is my <laughs> trap. <laughs> yeah. You'd think it would be a nervous disorder. That's kind of, that's what Camille said. Uh, like sometimes uh, people get when their feet, feet don't stay uh, up like this. They, they stay out. They drop. Something ain't working right. You know, that's, wow. Father of two doctors. Father of two doctors says it's something that's not working right. I have dropsy. There you go. Lex declares himself. Behold, Lex has dropsy. There's something not working It's, you gave it away, Wanda. You gave it away. What do you got, Alvin? Is that something like a Tourette's syndrome? Tourette's syndrome? You know, I don't think I had heard epilepsy before. It's one of the definitions I had heard in, in the past was epilepsy, which I'm going to say Tourette's is probably similar or in that form. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, uh, I, hit the, I hit the Google button, um, and Wikipedia says... Dropsy is edema, fluid retention, okay? And that's what's the swelling, like Wanda said. So, you know, Wikipedia isn't the smartest thing in the world. It's just done by millions of people. So I hit Holman's Bible Dictionary, Vines. Just, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. They concur. It's a symptom, maybe a symptom of disease like heart failure, liver, kidneys, brain. Fluid retention. So behold, a man appeared who was retaining fluid. Isn't that a miracle? Would, would you have seen the guy was retaining fluid? Would you have reached out to a guy who was in this condition? Yeah, he, probably different. I mean, today we see chronic heart failure. We see people retaining fluid more, more so than in a time like this. So, anyways. <laughs> so, who spotted him? Jesus spots him. Who asked the questions about the legality of healing on the Sabbath? Who asked questions? Jesus. He responds to lawyers and Pharisees who never ask a single question. He responds to them with, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
because they like to ask this question. He knows it's a trap. He spits it out first. Is it legal? Yeah. It depends on whether you have drops here. Yeah, you have drops? drops he is. I'm sure the guy who had the swelling, especially if it was something serious like a liver failure or a heart failure, it's hard. See, and I had dropsy, I would say yes. It was somebody else. So we asked questions they would have asked. Uh, the law does not condemn acts of mercy on the Sabbath, in case you're wondering. You know, Jesus asked this question because they like to ask this question. And the answer is, no, it really doesn't. Um, so what's their answer? They remained silent. And he took them and he took him and healed him and sent him away. So the, re, the answer by the Pharisees, and he says, is it, Jesus asked, is it legal? They don't answer. Crickets. Nothing. They all drop their eyes, look away. How does Jesus respond to the crickets? He desires mercy. He heals. He, give, he has mercy on the guy. He, he shows compassion. He heals him. He heals him and he sends him away. Why did he send him away? Maybe he shared dessert. I had some fantastic dessert last night at Central Florida Bible Camp. I had pineapple cobbler. Pineapple. I don't think I've ever had pineapple cobbler, but it was very good. I would say it was upside down cake that somebody called cobbler, but regardless. So, why didn't he just say, have my dessert, sit down? He sends him away. Because that guy wasn't invited either. He might have been there for the trap. He probably didn't just wander off the street. Hey, I heard Jesus is here to heal people on Saturday. Probably none of that. But he heals them, he sends them away. He, and it's not yet. Yeah, and it, it, maybe the time's not yet. This guy's going to go, he's going to spread the word. He's going to tell people what happened. Verse 5 and 6, and he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And they could not reply to these things. If your kid falls in a well, your ox falls in a well, who would just leave him there till the next day? And they're like, oh, they didn't reply at all. They valued the law, they valued their property more so than people. They would have saved their ox. They would have saved their son, who was actually property. They would have taken care of them, no questions asked. They would have jumped in. They ain't gonna, you're not going to lose something that's important to the farm. But they're not going to answer this question. They would not reply. One more feast. Let's see what we get done here. Parable of the wedding feast. Remember that. It's the parable of the wedding feast. Okay? Don't forget the title of this. It's very important. Verses 7 through 9. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. Then you began with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Anyone who humbles himself will be exalted. All right. 
So what prompts Jesus to tell the dinner guests, I left out a T, what prompts him to tell this parable to the dinner guests in verse 7? He tells They're all trying to sit in the best seat, right? That's what he said. He noticed how they chose the places of honor. Where, that's human nature. And the human nature business is a tough business to be in. Brent? That's why you sit in the back. The place of honor is eating on the Lord's table. How is this yell there, too, when you got to move and your wife's embarrassed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your wife's embarrassed. If we ask you to move, oh, you can't sit there. Um, if we had, yeah. Can't have you on camera, so you have to sit over there. So, where's the most honorable seat at the dinner table? What's that? Yeah. It's a wedding feast. Yeah, the groom, the bride are the closest first to eat, right? Okay, I'll give you that. Those are the places of honor. Don't sit in their seat. They're saved. They usually have a little placard or something that says, reserved for. In a mixture of Jewish, Roman, Greek, and Persian cultures at that time, we cannot be sure which were the chief seats. Where's the chief seat at your house? We go to your, din your dinner table. Go Thanksgiving Day. Where's the best seat? Where's the most honorable seat? Head of the table, right? That's it. Next to the grandkids, at the card table in the other room. That's the best seat? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> if you can tell jokes, you can be a hero sitting at the card table in the next room. I'll guarantee about a round table so you don't have that problem? There you go. The Talmud, that's the Jewish rabbi commentary on the Old Testament, ranked three seats on a couch by making the center the chief seat. The one on the right is second and the one on the left is third. So in case you're ever uh, around Jewish culture, that center seat on a three-person couch is the seat of honor. So This is what I compare it to. I don't care if you watch the show or not, you've seen the intro, right? We've all seen the intro to Simpsons, right? They scramble from wherever and they all scramble and they hit that couch at exactly the same time. The music's playing and they hit that couch. There's five of them on that seat. Lisa. Lisa's in the center. I saw a lot of pictures had uh, Santa's little helper in there too. But yeah, and I think it changes. I think that's the key with the Simpsons that every week the couch scene changes. So, but you know the scramble. You know the, like I said, the music's playing, they're scrambling everywhere, and they hit that couch. And this is what he saw at that dinner. People scrambling to get the best seat. What wisdom does Jesus impart about choosing your seat? If you choose the best seat, you choose that middle seat right there, tell me, tells you you got to move, you're going to be embarrassed. You choose a seat on the outside, Somebody says, no, you deserve the seat in the middle, you're going to be honored. That's the piece of information he gives. What did Jesus say this, this parable is about? A wedding feast. Other than the fact that it says so you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do you see anything about this parable that says anything about a wedding? Couldn't it just have been a feast? I mean, this is, this is a wedding feast, but there's nothing else about it other than the title. Who gets to see his honor at wedding? Santa Brent already said, the groom and the bride. The bride gets to see the honor. The groom just gets to sit next to her, right? That's the way I kind of look at it. But since there's a parable, who is the groom and who is the bride? 
the unmentioned groom and the unmentioned bride. Who's the groom? Who's the bride? The church is the bride of Christ. So the groom has to be Christ, right? He's telling this to a room full of Jews. Okay? This is <laughs> Jesus himself, the groom, tells them, this is where it's fine to see the honor at a wedding between the groom and the bride of Christ, between Christ and the church. You better be at it, but don't forget who's head of it. He's also fussing at them. They're arrogant enough now that they are the heads of the Jewish religion, and they're keeping people out. They're keeping people from hearing Jesus. They're wanting to kill Jesus, and they don't want people to have the truth. They're keeping people out. They're very arrogant. They've taken these top places, and that's basically they're sitting in his seat. They control the way in and out of the kingdom. That's what he's telling them. Don't take my seat. When does the seat swap happen? Basically, he's pointed out, you're sitting in my seat. When does this embarrassing seat swap happen? Happens with his gospel, really, right? His death, his burial, they think they're on top. They hung him on a cross. They put him through six trials. They hung him there to die. He died, and they thought they won. When he comes to life three days later, he's the king. He's the groom. He's got the best seat. And as we look at it, the written accounts in the gospel, you see that the ones who had the honorable seat were so arrogant, they're really not even welcome. They worked their way out. They're looking for that wide gate. They want to get in by their own way. To sum this up, to get into the kingdom of heaven, we'll talk about three feasts today. But seek to enter through the narrow gate. God tells you how to get there. Follow those directions. Don't follow your own directions. Don't use the wide gate because it looks cooler. Show mercy and do God's will at every opportunity. Like the guy with dropsy, the deathly disease of dropsy. Show, you know, I don't care if it's the Sabbath. I don't care if you've got to miss church. I'll be honest with you. I don't care if you've got to miss church. Take care of what you've got to take care of. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Don't be so arrogant keep people keep away. Be honorable in God's presence. And I think all, all three of these stories show that. Be honorable in front of the groom. So that's how you get in. Is that it? That's it. Leave you with that. So thanks for joining me today. Chuck's going to pick up with the great parable of the great banquet, which falls this in Luke 14, verse 12. That's where he should pick up next week. So thank you all. See you. See the one.